Welcome to Sister Scriptorians, where we are devoted to learning, likening, and lifting others one principle at a time. Episode 56, They Shall Not Be Ashamed. We begin today in 2 Nephi chapter 6. Here in this chapter, we have preserved for us one of the sermons of Jacob, Nephi's younger brother. Jacob had been set apart to be a teacher amongst the Nephites. He'd been called of God. He'd been ordained and consecrated by God through Nephi to assist in building up the kingdom of God among this broken-off branch of Israel. Not only had they been broken off from Israel, but they now have been separated from their brethren so that they can follow God and turn their back on iniquity. Now, this is not one of Jacob's first sermons, because in verse 3 he says that he speaks unto you again, for I am desirous for the welfare of your souls. And what wonderful scripture for us to be studying today right after we have just experienced general conference. I love the leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and my spirit feels their concern and their sincerity of heart, that they love us and that they desire to guide us in the direction that Father and our Savior would have us walk. And in verse 3, It sounds like that Jacob is just that kind of leader. So I don't know if he was addressing a general conference among the Nephites there, or if he was just going from small group to small group. But he says to the Nephites, Yea, mine anxiety is great for you, and ye yourselves know that it ever has been. And he reviews how he has exhorted them with all diligence, taught them from the words of his father Lehi, spoken to them about the things written from the creation of the world. Remember, they have the brass plates, they have the book of Lehi, and they have the ministerings of Nephi. This was a people grounded in scripture. He now desires to speak to them concerning the things which are in which are to come. And who does he turn to, to reference, to draw upon, to expound upon? Our friend Isaiah. Welcome back, Isaiah. And I find it as added substance to the context that these are words from the prophet Isaiah that Nephi specifically picked out for Jacob to testify of. And Jacob even reveals to us his intentions right at the beginning And I appreciate it when people do this for me. I should do it for you probably more often. Because I know it helps me to know what to look for, to listen for, to connect with the heart of the speaker in the very moment, and to be open to the gift of strength that I know that that speaker desires to fill me with. Jacob desired to speak to the Nephites for their sakes, that they may learn and glorify the name of their God. And you might think, duh, (laughs) that is what every Sunday sermon does. But I love the detail that this duo of Isaiah and Jacob then interpreting him or, or 
helping us understand the prophet Isaiah, teaches us about our God. I desire it to sink into me so that I can know exactly who I worship and so that I might glorify him sufficiently. So in 2 Nephi chapter 6 and 7, today we're going to comb through and highlight everything that we are taught that helps us to fulfill Jacob's, well, and then therefore our desire to glorify God. Jacob reassures his people that even though Isaiah spoke to the house of Israel, his words can be likened unto the Nephites. Why? Because they are the house of Israel. And what difference do you imagine that this makes? Him telling them and educating them that they are of the house of Israel. Remember, Jacob is of the first generation of these refugees born outside of Jerusalem. And so those younger than him will now have no personal memory or connection to Jerusalem. He was the first to be born without this reference. Therefore, it makes sense that the people will need reminding hereafter of their heritage and the promises God intends to keep to them. So Jacob begins with the words of Isaiah, which are found in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 49, verses 22 and 23. It reads, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people. What is the Lord's standard? When we read that, we need to understand that it is his gospel, his priesthood, and what we must do or become to qualify for his promised blessings, including eternal life, a God's life. There is peace in knowing he will set up this standard and let us know how we can aspire to follow his ways and become like him. But please make no mistake and do not become discouraged, especially after watching a weekend of conference. And I'm sure your goals have expanded after watching this past weekend. But do not make a mistake and do not become discouraged. The Lord's standard will require all of us to make sacrifices. There isn't one of us out there that aren't going to have to either temper our temperaments or use our time differently, or change our habits, or even do without our pet vices. We may need to stretch beyond our comfort zones and align ourselves with standards that we don't fully understand the whys, and withdraw ourselves even from what does not fit with His standard. Sometimes the Lord's standard can feel lofty. I mean, asking a boy as young as 11 to receive the priesthood, or to love your enemies, to not find delight in what the majority of the world embraces or is entertained by, for a family of little children to keep the Sabbath day holy, to make our homes peaceful and have gospel-centered learning happening there. But it is the Lord's standard, and Isaiah goes on to say that thou shalt know that I am the Lord. For they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. So the Lord's standard is not only going to cause us 
to commit to him and to attach our hearts to him. But those who truly do, who are waiting for him, waiting for a remission of their sins, waiting for their blessings to be realized, waiting for prayers to be answered, waiting to see his tender mercies, waiting on his timing, waiting for his coming, and waiting for his salvation, shall not be ashamed. Shame is a painful feeling. It is humiliation or distress caused because of thoughts that we have done wrong or have been foolish. I think it's from Brene Brown who summed up this complex emotion by saying that guilt is knowing we did something wrong. But shame is the belief that something is wrong with us. And you can see that with this definition, how shame creates feelings of diminished worth. When applying this simple definition of shame to these scriptures, I can see through two narratives. I'm sure there's more, but I'm a simple girl, so I've narrowed it down to two. That those who wait upon the Lord, who embrace his standard, and are carrying forth his works by waiting upon and gathering Israel, shall not be ashamed because one, they know that they are in accordance with him. Therefore, there is no shame. They trust nothing is wrong with them, even though they are different, even though principalities fight against them, or even when life doesn't meet their expectations. And then two, they shall not be ashamed because they have come to know, to truly know who it is they're waiting upon. They know what he is. They know what he's capable of, and therefore they know they need not be ashamed of any sacrifice they make for him and in his name. There is nothing wrong with us, sister scriptorians, though the world may mock. There's nothing wrong with him and his ways, though the world will reject him. And who is this Jesus whom they will reject? Who is he who is worth adjusting ourselves to his standard? Who we find no waste in waiting for? Who we choose to serve God's children in his name and aren't ashamed to do any of it? He is a personal, hands-on God. The scriptures say the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, should manifest himself unto them in the flesh. There is something beautiful in the knowledge that he came and subjected himself to all that was unholy to do his holy work. He was ridiculed to the severest, and yet he remained true and devoted to the purpose of his father. Jacob, because the Lord chose him to be another witness, showed him these things. And Jacob said that after he, the Lord, should manifest himself, they should scourge him and crucify him, according to the words of the angel who spake it unto Jacob. Honestly, my brain can't comprehend this. It can't comprehend why it had to happen this way. The scorn, the mocking, the suffering, the bleeding, the crucifying— 
I can't wrap my mind around it. I know what we're taught. I've read on the topic and my mind always wonders why he couldn't just speak it and it be done. But instead, he came. The mortal in him endured mortality, so therefore he endured all that so that he can understand us and know our hearts. And the immortal in him condescended and gave himself up so that we might live again and receive exaltation. The job required a God, and he volunteered to do it. How can we be ashamed of him? I think sometimes we're taught by those with really good intentions in order to drive home how we should appreciate the atonement and reverence it. I think we're taught to experience shame for our part in his suffering. Yet, if I believe that God knew the errors that I was going to make, and he had complete understanding that of course I was going to make those errors, that those errors were going to be teaching moments and ways for me to grow and ways for me to become more like him, that those of us who are trying to live his standard and using his atonement when we fall short shall not be ashamed. Everything is working as it is intended. There is no shame in accessing the power of his sacrifice. Jacob goes on to testify that the judgments of the Holy One of Israel shall come upon them. And living in accordance with his law spares us from the shame of his judgments. We will know that they're just. I think we're going to find relief in them. And his judgments will come upon the house of Israel because of how they treated him. But listen to this found in verse 11. They shall not be suffered to perish because of the prayers of the faithful. He is a God who is listening. He is a God who's responding. He loves and answers the prayers of the faithful who pray on the behalf of the house of Israel. Doesn't that make President Nelson's invitation to the youth last year to pray for the house of Israel that much more powerful for Israel, for our youth. And I believe because of those prayers, because of these invitations for him to intervene, those who are putting aside their agency and inviting him in, the scriptures say, the Lord will be merciful unto them, that when they shall come to the knowledge of their Redeemer, they shall be gathered together again to the lands of their inheritance. I find the mercy of God to be an attribute that I stand in awe of, especially in my role as a parent. The earnest instructing that we do for our children, when at times it feels like we have exceeded the whole 70 times 7 threshold of forgiveness, and yet to maintain, or at the very least to work yourself back to the merciful state of mind to restore trust when it has been violated, to bestow privileges when they've been withheld for appropriate reasons, 
Yet this is exactly what our Lord does. We shall not be ashamed when we truly see him do this for us. And it will be glorious to see him do it for others. For them to experience his love and the relief that it brings to them once more. It appears to be one of his favorite things to do. Jacob goes on to teach the Nephites, and therefore us, that the God we shall not be ashamed of keeps his covenants. He has made them, and he will follow through on his commitment to us. However, we know that the word that Isaiah uses, the word wait, is what's required of us until we see all of this come to fruition in his timing. But when the time comes, he will come in power and great glory and destroy our enemies through various elements, such as fire and tempest and earthquakes, bloodsheds, pestilence, and famine. He will deliver his covenant people. There is no shame in our Savior, our Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Jacob moves on with his address, expounding upon the words of Isaiah the prophet. And we can find these scriptures either in 2 Nephi chapter 7, or you can find them in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 1 through 11, and they're beautiful. It says, Yea, for thus saith the Lord, Have I put thee away? Or have I cast thee off forever? For thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? To whom have I put thee away? Or to which of my creditors have I sold you? Yea, to whom have I sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. The Lord does not move away from us. He has not found within us, something so fundamentally wrong that he would divorce us or sell us off to one of his creditors. He remains immovable while we, through our choice of iniquity and transgression, move away from him, which opens us up to shame. If we aren't near him, how can we expect to hold on to the knowledge of our worth? of our identity, because our true identity is that we are His. And how can we hold on to Him or unto that knowledge if we forget Him? We don't want to forget Him. When He calls, we want to be there to answer Him. When He reaches out His hand, we want to be touched. There is no shame attaching ourselves to Him. He who can redeem he who can deliver, he who has the power to rebuke and dry up the sea, the rivers, and to make the fish stink because the water is dried up. He clothes the heavens with blackness, and he makes sackcloth their covering. Through Isaiah's words, we witness how the Savior was not ashamed. He wasn't ashamed to speak his Father's words, to listen to his Father to not rebel against his father's plan, even when it became unbearable. He submitted, and he did not turn away. 
In verse 6, it starts, I gave my back to the smiter and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Jesus Christ is our exemplar. If the Lord Jesus Christ could endure all of that in order to carry out his Father's will, and he was still not ashamed, can you and I rise to the standard that he has set for us? If we do, I believe that we can liken these words to ourselves, that we can acknowledge, and the Lord is near, and he justifieth me. Or in other words, he will make us righteous. And then it says, For the Lord God will help me. There is no shame in the help we will receive from him. There is no shame in waiting for this help. And there is no shame in the process of getting that help. There is no shame in the realization that we don't possess the strength that it will take to become like him without him. Behold all ye that kindle fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks which ye have kindled. No, this isn't the way we want to walk. We don't want to rely on our light and our sparks. Instead, it is his light we want to surround us because we listen to his voice and we're not ashamed. Sister Scriptorians, wait upon the Lord. Love him for who he says he is. Trust him. Rely upon him. Strive to meet his standard and don't mourn the sacrifice you might make in order to do so. You will be blessed with abundance through his attributes and power. Stand tall, stay firm, and be not ashamed. Have a good day.